Our sermon this evening is going to be on 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12 and going through verse 24. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, going through verse 24. And after we read that, we shall read Lord's Day 52, Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 129. So again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have not done so according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything that you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or did I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. Thus far the reading of God's word. And to help us understand the word of God in a framework that has been passed throughout the ages, Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 129, the last question and answer of the catechism. Question, what does that little word, amen, express? Answer, amen means this is sure to be. It is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. That is the end of the reading of the catechism. Beloved of God, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, Truth. 
a weighty word in today's society. Fake news, fake features, fake materials, fake words, the toy that breaks as soon as it comes out of the packaging, the TV that goes on the fritz a month after you bought it, the facade of the world surrounds us. Like being on a movie set, our world looks amazing and spectacular, but behind the doorway, there's no building. There's no truth. Behind the curtains, there's no room. No, our world could not say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, because there is no man. There's merely just a curtain. The curtain hides emptiness. It hides nothing. There is no substance. There is no truth. Our world puts forth this beautiful facade and yet can reason with nothing. Our culture cries out for more, however. They desire substance. To put it plainly in the words of Pilate, they ask, what is truth? Our world is thirsty for the truth. The question we must ask then simply, who holds the truth? And what is the truth? Well, our simple answer to the first question is God. After all, he holds the keys, he holds the stars, he holds the universe and all that is. It is God who holds the truth. But what is it? How do we learn what truth is? Again, the call goes out, what is truth? How do we learn what it is? Again, there is a simple answer. Our childlike faith comes through once more. How do we learn what the truth is? Quite simply, we must converse with the one who holds it. We must have a covenantal conversation. Our God stoops to us, speaks, and gives us grace to hear. It's prayer. You see, our discovery of this world and the truth that God has placed in it starts with prayer. Last week we discussed what is the ending of our prayer. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This week we discover or we discuss the last word of the Lord's prayer. Amen. And so we, with the disciples, must ask, Lord, teach us to pray. You see, the disciples, seeing how Jesus communicated with the Father, wanted to know how to pray. 
Jesus would go off by his self, by himself, out into the wild lands, the quiet places, and he would pray. In Luke 11, when Jesus is asked by the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray, he is in the midst of praying. The disciples are thirsty. They want to know. Lord, teach us to pray. They want to know how to speak with the God who could give them truth. Too often when we view it prayer in just a cursory manner, we see it as a time of silence in church. In the normal flow of things, the pastor might stand up or get behind the stand or the pulpit and begin to pray. We pray for the church, we pray for the world, for the sick, for the poor. And then it all ends with the simple word, amen. As we're little, we might come together and, and fold our hands and shut our eyes. And when we're little, we might get restless as it's a time of quiet and stillness. There is peace. And all we can hear is the pastor's voice. And sometimes it drones on and on and on about this little thing and that. Pastors are well known for being long-winded. I myself have had the reputation of being long-winded in prayer. And I know it. And I know you probably, if you've ever heard me preach in the past or lead worship services in the past, I'm sure you're laughing on the other side of the camera. But... As we think about what it means to pray, to have a covenantal conversation, to ask the Lord for our daily bread, for him to guide us and protect us, that we should not fall into the devil's snares, that he would not lead us into temptation, but he would deliver us from the evil one. There is so much to pray about. We might ask the question, though, when should we pray as well? We might pray before or after meals. We might pray just here and there throughout the day. We might even just pray for things when we need them. When everything is going wrong, we might, think, we might pray that things would finally change. For many of us, maybe prayer is an afterthought for us. Maybe God is our cosmic 911 service. The fire truck that comes to put out the flames that seem to be raging around us. And yet, how do we finish even those types of prayers? Okay, God, I've done one for you, now you do one for me. Okay, I've made my bet. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. 
No, most of the time, even many of the unchurched people that I know, maybe they've interacted with Christians or they've seen someone pray on church or at church, they've seen someone pray on TV or something like that. No, even those little prayers tend to end with amen. So why? Well, to find out why, to figure out what our prayer is to be, we must start at the beginning. Our prayer doesn't begin with our conversation with God, no. Just like the catechism doesn't start with question and answer 129. It starts with question and answer 1. Amen is not what we could consider the beginning of our Christian walk. Rather, like with our prayer, amen is the culmination and proclamation that finishes it. Like our catechism, we must start at Lord's Day 1, our only comfort. Our impetus of prayer is that we start with Christ. We start with, with someone to pray to. For without that beginning, we cannot possibly hope to know our God, the one who created the heavens and the earth. You see, it is Christ who is the guarantee from the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John tells us it is in him that all things were created. He is our great high priest. And he is the one who also is the guarantor of the promises of God. In our passage this evening, Paul tells the Corinthians that their hope is to be in Christ. In verse 16, Paul says his intention was to visit them before he travels to Judea. However, issues have arisen in his trip that would have been more of a detriment, that, he would, that his visiting would have been more of a detriment than a blessing. Paul's trip through Asia, if you read the earlier verses in the chapter, Paul's trip through Asia has been hard on him. It has left him weary and broken. In verse 9, Paul actually opens his heart to the Corinthians and gives them a picture of what it was like to be him on a missionary journey. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Paul is weary and broken, but Paul continues. This brokenness is a blessing. For it reminds him to rely all the more on God. Continuing in verse 9, But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. 
Yet Paul does not want the Corinthians to be distracted by the state that he would have arrived in. We know both from 1 Corinthians and also from messages in this book that other men proclaiming a false gospel, a strange gospel, another gospel, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, they were lying about Paul to the Corinthians. They were spreading rumors and falsehoods. They were spreading things about Paul that Paul was really just trying to be someone who was going to get their money. Yet we know that in Corinthians, Paul was a tent maker there. That Paul did not go with lavish language. But rather, he proclaimed the word simply. Again, he reiterates that in 2 Corinthians in our passage. He says, I did not write to you in ways that you could understand. I did not speak to you in ways that you could not read or understand. He wrote simply. He wrote in such a manner that it was easy for them to hear. But we know that other men proclaiming that false gospel were lying to them and that some of the members had been led astray. So Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, was prevented in going to visit them twice on this trip but merely only made it once. Paul states that this is not an inconsistency on his part, though. Nor was he lying to them when he initially made his plans. It was not yes, yes, and then no, no, but rather that his intention always was to visit them again. Rather, it's the will of God. And it is this will that permeates Paul's preaching. Paul uses this as a lesson to say that it is the will of God that permeates his preaching and that it is in the gospel that we will find Christ as our yes and our amen. You see, the gospel's foundation was in the beginning. Paul gives us insight into this when he says in the letter to the Ephesians, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. You see, beloved, even in our past, God chooses us. God chooses us to be partakers of this gospel where we find Christ as yes and amen. The truth of God's selection cuts through the lies of the devil. Our past is there for a reason. Not merely the past of the world, but your past and mine. No matter what you have done, no matter where you have come from, no matter the circumstances of the birth or of your birth or the mistakes that you have made in your life, The truth for the Christian is that God chose you. God chose you. You see, that's our present status. It wasn't because of who we are. It wasn't 
because of what we've done. It's not our potential. It's not who we may have been. No, the truth for the Christian, God chose you. If you're listening to me and hearing these words being spoken, being spoken and you do not know the love of Jesus Christ, this can be your truth as well. This can be true of you. It's not an isolating truth. It's not a truth that merely sits with you on your couch as you listen to these words. It's not a truth that is here or there and just kind of maybe hits you once in a while. It's not something that you can sit here at church and then not have at work. It's not something that merely touches you in your home life, but not anywhere else. It's a truth that encompasses your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Down to the last bit. It is a truth that God washes you clean. Even all your sins, all your prides, all your lusts, all your hatred, God still loves you. I ask that if you do not know this this evening, that you would hear his call. It is the call that has transformed our path, my path, the members of this church's path. It's that call that brought us to Jesus. We are his. He is the way. He is also the truth. He is the means by which we are saved. It is him who saves us. In him there's no falsehood. To deny that Christ is to deny our present status as those who are intimately linked to the bridegroom. We've been changed. He's taken our past and has washed us clean. He comes to us where we are but does not leave us there. Our status is not those who are lost in darkness. The light has come and we have seen a great light. Christ reveals himself as the truth. Specifically in Revelation chapter 3, when he speaks to the city of Laodicea, he proclaims himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. You see, he has accomplished his work on the cross and has given the truth all. He is not far off. He is with you. As Paul states in our passage, he is not yes and no. Christ is not saved and yet has not. He is not present and yet he is not. He is not ruler and yet he is not. No, he is the amen. He is the let it be, the yes it is, the this is true. Christ 
Is that embodied? In this, he distinguishes himself from the world. There's no spin. There's no perspective. There's no double speak with Christ. There's no angle he's trying to get at. One of the things I have to credit many of my professors throughout college and seminary with is that they were always critical of the sources. And they taught us to be critical of the sources as well. When we look at books or articles or studies or analyze things, we must ask the questions, who is this coming from? Why are they telling this this way? Why do we use this commentary and not that one? Why do we read Kelvin but not Arminius? Why do we read Luther and not Pius X? Why are we able to easily read Augustine and yet question Aquinas? Why do we use this Bible study over here and yet not that one? Well, we were taught not to take the word of man at face value. Maybe, let me put it in this perspective. Why does the news anchor tell the news in a particular way? Is he leaving things out? Is the journalist trying to spin things so it looks this way or it looks that way? What perspective is he trying to portray? What position does he want you to take? Why does the author of the book write for this audience or that audience? Why does he write for Christians or Muslims or atheists or agnostics? Why does he write for science-minded people or non-science-minded people? Why does he write for rhetoricians or logicians? Who does he write for? Or maybe my favorite one. Why does the preacher on TV preach that way? Why does my preacher behind the pulpit preach that way? Why does the man with the perfectly coiffed hair and the white pearly teeth, the one with a laser light show, why does he speak things that are quite amazing? And yet the talking head or the angry speaker or the yelling and fisted one, why does he seem to not make a connection? Because there's always a perspective. There's always something lacking when it comes to the words of man. Even in this sermon you hear tonight. I don't know all things. I may miss something. I may have a perspective on certain things. I may not get all of it. I am human. I may look at something in a different way than you see. Maybe I run out of time and I'm not able to get to everything I'd like to cover. 
Maybe I'm unable to articulate the wonders that God has laid out in front of me. I'm flabbergasted to the point of babbling. Maybe you think I'm just babbling right now. The point here, though, is that no man intentionally or even unintentionally has all and can communicate all information. Only the truth can. Only the reality can. Only that which is real can. And only one who knows all things in a real way, only the one who has all the answers, only the one who has all the truth can reveal it in a complete way. And Christ is the only one qualified to do that. He's the only one qualified to be our mediator because he's the only one who not only knows our suffering, but he also knows completely our Heavenly Father's will. He was there in the beginning. He knew the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane and even prayed for the cup to be taken from him if it was his Father's will. And yet he still drank deeply of it. He's the way to the Father. And he is the truth that reveals the Father. And he is the guarantor of our life with the Father. Paul declares in our passage tonight, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Christ is the amen that has accomplished the promises of God. So we can be assured of all of them. From the first promises of the garden to the promises of the new heavens and the new earth and all of Revelation. All the promises of God from Genesis all the way through. You see, all of the promises have been guaranteed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Christ himself that reveals these things to us. As it was spoken by the prophets and proclaimed by the apostles, our new life is not one of broken living, where the fear of death and disease hangs as a cloud above our heads. We are not given a gift only to have it snatched from our hands. Because of Christ, the yes and amen permeates throughout all of Scripture. Hear what Isaiah says of that in chapter 65. The promises of God for the new heavens and new earth. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. 
No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. The future is promised and guarded by the peace of God. And these promises are already being accomplished even before us now. Even now we're able to take our pleas and petitions before the Father. Our prayers rise as sweet incense. And God proclaims through his prophet Isaiah, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The death of Christ gives us access to the Father that had not been granted since the Garden of Eden. We are looking now to the day where in the new Jerusalem we will walk with our God. The symbolic tearing of the veil in the temple demonstrates that we have access to the mercy seat of God, the throne of all the universe in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, that is the assurance we have that our prayers are heard. It's not because of who we are. It's not because of what we've done. But it's because our Lord God has spoken it himself. We no longer have to come to God in fear and trembling, but we are able to approach the throne of God as children, beloved by him. That's our hope and our assurance we have in prayer, as the catechism teaches us. Before our words are formed, our meditator, Jesus Christ, our invocator, the Holy Spirit, are already bringing our petition of our hearts to God the Father in such a way that we cannot describe. Our prayers are a Trinitarian, covenantal conversation. Our God, through Jesus Christ, has stooped to us so that now, in confidence and hope, we may reach toward him in the heavenly places. His selection of us washes our past to make us presentable before him, that we are made holy. His powerful works today provide, protect, and sustain us for every good work. He reveals himself to us as the truth, giving us reason and rationality. He shows us what is real in this world, providing any more, or providing more than any man possibly could with the rages of spin and vagary.
And today, now, he extends the gospel of hope to us all. In his life, we find the yes and the amen. That it was, that it is, and that it shall be in the promises of God. So much so that we are assured of in our prayer that net, let not one amongst us say that our prayers are unanswered. Rather, may we be so certain of the work of Christ, the creation of all things, the sustaining of our lives. Let us be so confident of Christ that all of our prayers may be finished with amen. Let it be, Lord. Let it be. To the glory of God alone. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you after this message, this time where we have looked upon your word, where we have contemplated the weight of amen. Lord, we come before you as your children. Give us peace and comfort in this time. Give us hope for each new day. As we finish looking at the Lord's Prayer, all six petitions are ending and the final word. Lord, let it be. Let it be. I ask that you would be amongst us, Lord. And as you join me across the camera to the homes of our parishioners, I ask that those of you who are joining me now, let us enter into the Lord's Prayer. And let us say with one heart and one voice, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. As you go upon your work weeks, your home weeks, as the Lord proclaims that you are salt and light in this world, may you hold out the word of life like shining stars in the universe. And as we know that our yes and amen is in Christ, using the words of the ironic blessing from Numbers, chapter 6. Reading now, may the Lord bless you and keep you.
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Let all God's people say, Amen. Have a blessed week and a restful evening.